0: We welcome you to High Point Church this morning, and we are continuing in our our study in the book of Isaiah. This is the Christmas season, and we are going to be tying this into the Christmas story a little bit this morning. In chapter 8 of Isaiah, we're not going to go there, but tell you a little bit about what it says. It describes how the Israelites had rebelled against God. They had embraced idolatry. They had embraced witchcraft. Their spiritists and spiritualists and mediums did not bring them any light. Even though they had sought after all these things, they found that they were still in darkness. Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will no... There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah wrote that this blanket of darkness had covered the, the land of Zebulun, and Naphtali, two of the tribes. And these specific tribes were in an area around the Sea of Galilee. During the New Testament times, in the days of Jesus, um, that region actually fell in the area where Jesus lived, or Galilee. During Jesus' time, the residents of Jerusalem despised this area, mainly because it had become a refuge for Gentile settlers. And the Jews despised the Gentiles and everybody else that wasn't a Jew at the time. But God goes on, Isaiah goes on to say that God did not intend for his people to experience anguish and gloom forever. He said that yes, they were in the darkness, but he spoke of something that was coming that would put them in the, in the light. In fact, he promised at some point to honor them and make them a great nation again. And he, he was going to go about doing this by providing a great light to his people. Isaiah prophesied of a coming redeemer that would bring a great blessing. Um, to a certain degree, these the person that he's talking about could have been applied to King Hezekiah or to another king of Judah. Remember, the book of Isaiah is written with three different time frames in mind. The current time of where they were, a short distance in the future, and then distant prophecy to, ahead to the time of Jesus and to our time. So, yes, there could have been deliverance speaking of their deliverance out of captivity, but ultimately, he was speaking of a deliverance that was even greater than the deliverance out of captivity. In the fullest sense, Isaiah was directly referring to the Messiah. Messiah the one that they looked forward to from the beginning. In fact, chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. This is some more of Isaiah's writing. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. Another prophecy, yes, about the deliverance from Babylon, but also speaking to us in our day. Then in Isaiah 41 or 47 and, or 49 and 6, I'm sorry, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, speaking in a short-term context and then distant context that applies to us. So let's keep all of this in mind that not only was Isaiah writing to his contemporaries, he was writing directly to us. In chapter 9 and verse 2, Isaiah uses a tense that shows it seems to indicate that the people were walking in darkness have already seen a great light, like it's already happened. And if we read that, we would say, Well, I don't understand that maybe because it, it it he's writing it and they haven't even been taken into captivity yet. And he's speaking as if they had already been delivered, and that this has already happened. One of the things you have to remember that in in Hebrew prophecy, it was a common thing for them to speak as something had already happened because to do that was stating an absolute certainty that it was going to happen. So you just spoke as if it had already happened. So that's not an uncommon thing in prophecy. In Isaiah 9 and 2, it speaks of a light. The <clears throat> light is spoken of through the, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Genesis 1 and 2, it reveals that Darkness existed before the light of creation. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So it, darkness here describes an emptiness. As darkness was associated with, with chaos and, and nothingness uh, before creation, it became associated with disorder and even with wickedness. In Job 18 and 18... He is driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. In other words, here is darkness, and here is light. There's this contrast between the two. Isaiah was not coming up with anything new. This is something that was used all through the Bible to designate this vivid contrast between darkness and light. Darkness was also um, equated with death, Job chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. In other places in the Scripture, darkness is used to symbolize human ignorance of God's will. Um, and often it's, it's used to symbolize ignorance that results in sin. Again, in, in the book of Job, Chapter 24 verses 13 through 17 There are those who rebel against the light who do not know its way or stray in its paths When daylight is gone the murderer rise up rises up and kills the poor and needy in the night he steals forth like a thief The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk he thinks no eye will see me and he keeps his face concealed In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of the darkness. Now, those that have rejected the truth of Christ later on in the New Testament, let's go to John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Those that have rejected salvation are said to be in darkness also. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Again here, now we're talking to darkness as salvation and sin. In John 12 and 35. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you the man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going so in contrast to darkness light has has been associated with the presence of truth with the presence of a redemptive activity from god or salvation that we can experience at creation It said that there was darkness before, but then during creation, if you look at Genesis 1 and 3, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, here's the contrast all the way back to the first scripture we read. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Again, that vivid contrast here of darkness and light. Light is also used as a spiritual... metaphor for illumination in the spirit john again back to john chapter one verses four and five we saw that there was a contrast between sin as darkness and we saw light as salvation and these passages make they make several things clear one of them is that the origin of god or the origin of light rests with god and he is the essence of light this indicates that he is the the ultimate source of all knowing and understanding. All knowledge is equated with with the light and with God. And then contrastly, darkness rests with Satan and is the essence of darkness. And he is the source of all ignorance, superstition, and oppression. So we see these tremendous contrasts and differences that all through the Bible that are explained out, and then Isaiah, in the passage we just read, is saying that there will be a light that will come to you and it will be your salvation. Going on, Isaiah chapter nine verses three through five. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of the Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. There will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah was a writer that often wrote about the judgment of God, but he never left it with just judgment he also brought about another contrast, and that was of reward. And if you look through Isaiah's writing, you see that time and time again, how God will judge his people, but in the end, he will come back and he will redeem them, and they will receive their reward. The opposition, the Assyrian opposition of Israel, would eventually leave the Jewish people feeling humiliated and diminished As a people, mainly because they, the ones that were taken captive were primarily the upper class ruling people of the day. And they went from that social status to being mere slaves. So there was this tremendous difference in their place in society. But Isaiah's prophecy pointed to a time in the future when there would be peace and there would be prosperity and that God would prevail. And at that point, the Israelites would have reason to rejoice because they had been delivered. There can be no deliverance unless there was a captivity. Isaiah compares the, the joy that would, that would come to them, he compares it to a, a farmer that has this harvest that comes in and he's got all the sheaves lined up and he rejoices over the bountiful harvest. He also equates it to a, a soldier or a group of soldiers as they divide up the spoil after a battle. He went on to say that the the Israelites were feeling this tremendous oppression, and he spoke of it as a yoke, as a, a team of oxen would have. They would have this heavy yoke or bar across their shoulders, and as long as that yoke is there, they are under the burden of that yoke. And that's the way the the people of God were. At one time they were free, they had been given the promised land, they had received all they were to receive, but now they were in bondage, or they were going to be in bondage. And in Isaiah 9 and 4, it gives a reason, the reason for rejoicing. And that is deliverance. Isaiah thought back to the time when the Israelites were delivered from Midianite oppression. During the era of the judges, back some time before Isaiah lived, the Midianites had overrun the land and they left virtually nothing for the Israelites to eat. They took their sheep, their cattle, their donkeys. And God's people were forced to evacuate to the low-lying regions and seek shelter in the clefts of the mountains. They lived in caves and other places of refuge. But God did not abandon his people, even though their enemy had seemingly won over them. First, he sent a prophet to declare that the Israelites had disobeyed all that he had told them because they were practicing idolatry. Then he raised up a man named Gideon to liberate the Israelites. And through this incredible military battle God used Gideon's army of 300 men to defeat an enemy of 135,000 troops. Again, this tremendous contrast between good and evil. In fact, God... He allowed not just the people to defeat the enemy, but they actually chased them out of the land. 300 men against 135,000 soldiers. This victory over the or the Isaiah was saying that the victory that was coming for the people of Israel would be just like this. It would seem to be something that was absolutely impossible. How can we be delivered? We're slaves. They've destroyed our our country. They've torn down the walls of our cities. And we're mere slaves. And Isaiah said, don't worry about it. God will restore you. You can have joy. But how can I have joy when I'm in captivity? In Isaiah 9 and 5, he declared that every boot of the enemy that had marched across God's promised land, had destroyed God's people, would be thrown into the fire. Also, every uniform that was worn by those soldiers that was stained with blood would also be thrown into the fire. Now, this had a lot of meaning because in that day, the soldiers that they were fighting often would get as much blood on their uniforms as they possibly could in battle. And when they went into battle, they didn't clean their uniforms. They still had that blood all over them. And it was strictly for intimidation of who they were coming against. And God said, even those garments that are covered in blood will be thrown into the fire. Complete deliverance. Isaiah 9 Chapter six and seven. Excuse me just a minute. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Many commentators have identified the child that's mentioned in 9 and 6 as the same child that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the same person spoken of in both places. And most Bible scholars, and today most of us do too, feel that these scriptures are fulfilled in the New Testament. For example, in Luke 1 and 32. He will be called, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Again, Isaiah prophesied that he would be a descendant of David. We've studied in the past that Jesus was truly a descendant of David. If you follow the lineage all the way through, Jesus was a great, 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 grandson. I think I got that right. Of David. So prophecy was fulfilled in that. He said that the, his kingdom will be everlasting and his government will be absolutely righteous. Isaiah chapter 11 verses four and five. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist. It's interesting if you read the King James Version for the, the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, they list five different names that God would be called. But if you look at the, the New International Version, most Bible scholars think that that's a little bit more accurate because it only lists four. Number one, it lists him as a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. And I believe the idea here is that Jesus as a counselor, counselor will bring the words of life to his people. He will rule his people justly and fairly. And he will carry out the plan that is set before him. We know for a fact that Jesus did just that. He carried out the plan, even though he knew what it would cause him personally and what it would cost him personally. But he did it anyway, knowing that that was the plan of God. So he is our wonderful counselor. Wonderful wonderful?" Wonderful counselor. And, And I was doing some study this week. It seems that a lot of Bible scholars tend to go with the wonderful counselor as being one, that he is this wonderful counselor. He is, he is both of those, but when you put them together, it changes the meaning just a little bit. Going on, it will say that it will prove that his authority is supreme, that he is unchallengeable, that he has the power to carry out all that God had promised in the Old Testament. And we know for a fact that that's exactly what he did. He is the mighty God. We find the image of a powerful warrior. And throughout Isaiah's writings, he often proclaims this person to be a powerful warrior. Now, Jesus didn't come into the world and fight and kill people and and that type of thing. But we know that he overcame death, that he never sinned, And that he stood for everything that was good, and he never changed in the whole time that he was on earth. So we see that he is a mighty warrior. He fought a battle so that we wouldn't have to fight that battle. He conquered death, he conquered the grave, and we have a promise because of that. The Everlasting Father, it shows that Jesus will be a father to his people eternally. Unlike a lot of the other rulers that the Israelites had experienced, many of them were very, very tough on the people. They demanded tremendous taxes. They demanded tremendous amounts of work. And they weren't just in the way that they ruled. But he would be fair. He would be an Everlasting Father. The, the kings of that day, they didn't treat their subjects as if they were their children. They treated most of them as if they were their slaves. And this was in contrast to that, that this would be a king that would be like a father to his people. And he want to say that he would be the prince of peace. And I believe that this indicates a lot more than just that there would be no war. I believe that it talks about a peace that goes beyond this peace that we've talked about many times that that passes all understanding and a peace between God and man and a peace between man and man. So it's more than just... And a lot of times we, we, we read this casually and we say, He's the Prince of Peace. That means there'll be no war. Maybe that's what it means. But I believe even more importantly than that is that peace between us and God that we can experience. That peace in our own lives that we can experience because of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that of His kingdom there will be no end. And what does that mean to us? It means that He is eternal. We go back to that everlasting Father, that means that He doesn't come to an end. The fact of His kingdom, once it's established, it will go on Forever. There had never been a king and never has been and never will be a king on this earth whose kingdom lasted forever, no matter how great they were. But Isaiah was saying that there would be one that would come whose kingdom would be without end. Was he speaking to the people of that day? Sure. But more importantly, was he speaking to you and I today? Absolutely. Often is. As I teach, and as most people that teach, they find that the the topics you teach on are, are quite sobering. But then again, there's often things that we say, hopefully, that put a smile on your face, or you laugh out loud, or sometimes even one of those snort laughs. I would have Ruthie demonstrate, but... <laughs> and it's refreshing to know that this is a congregation that is not afraid to laugh and smile. Amen. And I believe it's because we have realized that in Christ, we can have joy. Regardless of the circumstances that were going on when we walk through these doors, when we come into the presence of God, We can have joy in our daily lives, no matter what goes on outside of the world and around us, we can still have joy. The church is too often seen as a a bunch of uptight, sober, sour faced people that spend their time pointing fingers at people trying to pick out sins and trying to catch them at it. And unfortunately, that perception too often is true. Some people don't feel like they've worshiped if they haven't sat and frowned for at least an hour. But it's church. We're supposed to be solemn because it's church. What happened to the rejoicing? What happened to the joy? Yeah, there are times in church when we're not laughing and snorting. There's times when we talk about serious subjects. But you know what? For the most part, I feel like that our demeanor should be an attitude of joy. rejoice. Sure. Especially if we realize that the, the condemnation and the, the judgment that's going to fall is on those that have not received salvation. So if we have received salvation, we really don't have to worry about that. So we can have joy. And yes, there are times when we really need to look at things very seriously. In our text this morning, we have seen that there is darkness and there is light. There is sorrow and there is joy. Having the choice of sorrow or joy, I choose joy. That doesn't mean I always walk around with a big smile on my face. It doesn't mean that I am always look like I just got into the cookie jar or something. It means that inside, we don't have to be influenced by the things that are outside. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The night that Jesus was born, an angel appeared to the the shepherds out in the field. In Luke 2 and 9 through verse 11, let's look what the angel said. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Mm. Joy was born that night in Bethlehem. True joy was born right then and there. And this joy was not just the happiness that comes at the birth of a child. I'm sure that that Joseph and Mary were very excited that, that this baby was being born. But there was more than just that typical happiness that comes when a baby is born. It was not joy just limited to family and to friends of Mary and Joseph. But that joy reaches far beyond that time to today it's an everlasting joy the joy that isaiah spoke of when he spoke of the one that would be called wonderful counselor mighty god prince of peace the everlasting father that's where that joy comes from isaiah talked about it all the way back in the old testament We experience it today, thousands of years later. Later in Jesus' life, in the 16th chapter of John, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go away. And they didn't understand. They really didn't understand what he was talking about. And they questioned what he meant. This is how he answered in in John chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. Jesus saw what they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no more, and after a little while you will see me. When he was crucified a large portion of the world rejoiced. For them, it was not a sad day. It was a joyful one for those that opposed Jesus because the crucifixion to them meant that a heretic was dead, a troublemaker was gone, a critic was silenced, and justice had been done. And meanwhile, the followers of Jesus mourned, just as Jesus told them. They felt as if their life was caving in around them. All that they had hoped for had been taken away from them. Their hope was gone. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. The world could not stand the possibility that that actually happened. They had worked so hard to silence Him. And later on, they worked so hard to silence those that said they saw Him after He was resurrected. It's exactly right. They did not want to admit that this Savior had actually come back to life. John 16, verses 21 and 22 says, As a result of the resurrection, your grief will turn to joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have a joy that no man can take away from us. We can get rid of it ourselves, but there is no one that can take it away from it. It's just like salvation. No one can take salvation away from us. We can give it up ourselves, but no man will take it away from us. The result of the resurrection was joy. Not only joy for the disciples, not only joy for, for those that loved Jesus of that day, but joy for everyone that would follow Him from that time forward, and that includes you and I today. We, just as the disciples did can go from hopeless to joyful. Hope will bring joy. And joy overpowers fear. So if we have hope, we don't have to have fear. When we have hope and we have joy, we don't have to fear sickness or death. Because if we're sick and we die, what's the worst thing that can happen? We go to heaven? That kind of takes away the fear. That's not a tragedy. That's a blessing. That's what we're all looking forward to. The loss is not a a final thing because death has lost its power. That battle that Jesus fought for you and I was to defeat death. We can live joyfully. And not only has death lost its power we know that one day these bodies will be resurrected. We know that because Jesus Christ said, I will be crucified, I will be buried, but on the third day, I will rise again from the grave. We know that that happened. And because of that, we know that when the appointed time comes, we too will be resurrected. Because of the birth that we celebrate this time of year, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, because of that, we can now experience a forgiveness that makes us pure in God's eyes. And this is a source of true joy. It is when we believe that we are truly forgiven. Forgiven. There are people in the world today that have lived their lives in ways that that they know are not pleasing to God. They're not even pleasing to themselves. And when they come to God to, to ask for forgiveness, it's difficult for them to believe that He really will forgive them because they look at their sin as being just so horrible. Let me tell you something this morning. There is no sin that God looks at as worse than another one. If two people stand before God in judgment and one of them told what we would call a little white lie and the other one had murdered 27 people, we would say the one that had murdered 27 people is a horrible person. The other one only committed a little white lie. But you know how God looks at them? Exactly the same. And because of that, we can look and say, it doesn't matter what's happened in my life, if I ask God for forgiveness, He will forgive me. I can have the same joy, regardless of my past, that anyone else can have. We can rejoice because of that, and we're reminded that whatever pain we're feeling right now, It's just temporary. And the path that we're on is leading to something that's eternal and eternal joy. So while the world rejoiced, the disciples mourned. And often our life is kind of like that. Friends disappoint us circumstances become difficult. But here's the good part. That's not the end of the story. Psalm 30 and 5, the King James Version. For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. God has not promised that we will never feel pain. He has never promised that we would never have opposition. He has never promised that we wouldn't have failure from time to time. But the one thing that can remain constant through all of that is the joy that God gives that the world cannot take away from you and I that peace that passes all understanding. I can't even understand how there could be peace in the middle of all this, but God's promised it to me. And we can have that assurance because, as Ray said, we know the rest of the story. And this knowledge, not our circumstance, is the reason for our joy. You look at people that are going through horrible things in their life, and you, the world looks at them and says, how can they have joy? Because their circumstances don't... They don't restrict their joy because of their circumstances. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Hopefully today, Pastor Bishop. Yeah, this made so joy. Everybody knows Jerry Cruz is looked like an Alaska. He retired a couple of years ago. But a, 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 a couple of days ago, his body And he said, I'm tired of this. I want to go home. And they thought he was going to come to live for many years. But they found out he wants to live the everlasting. That's exactly right. And it's a wonderful thought to know that God is a loving God and that He will provide that opportunity for someone to make their life right so that they can be assured of their salvation before they actually leave this world. And hopefully today and at Christmas and any other time that you sing the words to a song that we we sing so often. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves singing these words because we've sung them all our life and they become a Christmas song or a Christmas carol. And they're just words. No different than singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They have no more meaning to most, most people. Except this. As we sing those words, since we know who our king really is, could we sing them with a renewed hope? And because of that renewed hope, could we sing these words with a renewed joy? A renewed joy because truly we know that the Lord is come. And He and He alone is the source of our joy. God bless you.